Let's go together now into God's word to John chapter 13. We're in the upper room with Jesus. We're in this series of messages from John 13 to 17, what we call the upper room discourse, these amazing words of Jesus there on that night. And as we talk today, we're going to talk about glory. Now, what's your idea of glory? We know of famous musicians who take the stage to bright lights and cheering crowds. And we say, that's a bit of glory. That person's experienced some, some glory. We see famous athletes. They enter into packed stadiums to cheering fans. And if they're really good, they might be awarded an MVP award. If they're really good over a whole career, they might be inducted into a hall of fame. And they're receiving some glory for all of that. But here we have Jesus, and he's going to bring up glory just moments after Judas leaves the upper room to go and betray him. Jesus is going to bring up his glory, knowing that by the very next morning, after saying these words, by nine in the morning, he's going to be hanging on a cross, what we just celebrated together at the table. So Jesus clearly had something different in mind than how we typically think about glory. Let's go into his words now. John 13, verse 31. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while and I'm with you. You will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. There's so much happening just in these few verses, but let's notice several things. First of all, Jesus speaks of his glory in the crucifixion. Jesus speaks of his glory in the crucifixion. That's verse 31. Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Jesus used the word glory here five times just in these two verses. Now, what is glory? It has to do with giving and receiving praise and honor. And so Jesus is saying that he and the father are going to be glorified in all that is taking place, including the cross. We might even say, especially the cross. Now we know that Jesus is going to be rightly glorified in his resurrection. So on the third day, raised glorious. Absolutely. We know that after that, he's going to ascend to heaven and he will be glorified as he ascends back to his throne in heaven. We anticipate what is still to come, that Jesus will come back in glory when in his second coming, when he comes to judge and to rule and to save all that's coming next glorious. But Jesus here says that yes, with those things in view, but most immediately with the crucifixion coming right up. Now we might ask the question, how can Jesus be glorified in a cross? How can Jesus be glorified in the betrayal of Jesus, uh, Judas that's happening even at that moment? 
How can Jesus be glorified in crowds soon to be yelling, crucify, crucify? How is he to be glorified in a crown of thorns and beatings and a bloody death on a cross? Well, we just celebrated that together. That he is glorified as the one and the only one who can save us from our sins. That as the angels proclaim in heaven, that he alone is worthy to redeem us. And so he is indeed glorified in the cross. Last week, listening to Albert Moeller's daily briefing podcast, he has a time where people can write in with questions and then he'll respond. And one child raised a question similar to what we're talking about now. And I bet it's a question you've asked yourself. A child wrote in, if God is good and all knowing, why did he place the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden of Eden, knowing that Adam and Eve would sin? I bet you've asked that one. Why, why would you do that? You knew exactly what was going to happen how sin would wreck the earth, why did you do it? And here's what Albert Moeller said in response. He said, it comes down to this, God in his sovereignty determined that he would bring himself greater glory and show human beings a greater form of love by redeeming us as sinners from our sin through Jesus Christ than if in the garden we had never known sin and never known him who was the one who saved us from our sin. Moeller continues, let's put it this way. John Calvin, one of the great Protestant reformers, he simply put it with a very easy formula. In the garden, had human beings never sinned, we would know God as creator and that would be glorious. But in the church, we know God as creator and as redeemer and that is infinitely more glorious. Moeller continues, it's so sweet to know that God loved us so much that he wanted to show us his love by sending his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a greater understanding we have of the love of God that we would not have had had Adam and Eve never sinned. That's really true, isn't it? True, we hate all that sin has done to the earth, but we cannot deny that we have this greater knowledge and experience of God, especially his love, when we consider what he has done to redeem us. Now, rightly, we are in awe of God as our powerful creator. In fact, I hope you are. This summer, at risk of belaboring that point, we talked about creation a couple of weeks, and we just acknowledged again and again, we are not here by accident. Our life is not random God designed this universe and placed human beings on this universe. And here in the fullness of time, we get to live on this earth. And God is our creator and sustainer. Aren't we awed by him and his power and his knowledge to do what he does? But aren't we overwhelmed, though, when we think that God who created all that, he even notices us and saw us and all of our sin. And he came for us to rescue us. And, and think about this. He wants to adopt you as one of his children. And the high price he paid to make that possible, that his son would die on a cross for you. We're just overwhelmed by that, that he was willing to do that for us. So we see at the cross the glory of Jesus because we see the unparalleled love of God there. We see his unmatched mercy and grace. Jesus, indeed, as we were just singing, he stands alone in all of his glory. Now, do you know that about him? Do you have that knowledge of him? Do you know God as your creator and as your redeemer. Some people just take part of that. They know God made them. That's actually good. That's, that's progress. I know he made me. That's huge. Some people get stuck though at provider. I know he made me and I know he provides for me, but they know nothing of him being their redeemer and they're missing out on so much. At Glen Allen Day uh, recently, we talked to a lot of people and I think I shared with you recently about talking to some teenagers about Christ. 
But there was one other conversation that stands out in my mind that day, and it was with one of the vendors near us. In a lull and people coming by, I got to talk to the person next to us, and I shared our wristband and invited them to church. And of course, like you would have done, then try to turn the conversation to what Jesus did for us using those symbols on the wristband. And this man could not get the cross. He could not understand grace. So as I shared these things, he acted like he was understanding. And then when he, when he spoke, he said, yeah, God's been so good to me and giving me a house and giving me clothes and things like that. So he's going to provider. I'm trying to get him to understand savior. And then I thought, so, all right, he's not getting that. And that's not an unfamiliar conversation. So go right back. Let's, let's go back to the cross. If we needed though, yeah, it's great. God is a great provider. But all of our sin that we have, we're, we're separated from God because of our sin. Look what God did. Jesus came to die on a cross for us. And he came back with something like, yeah, he's got me through some tough times in my life. Thinking, no, he's, just, he's not getting, he cannot understand the magnitude of the love of Jesus because he doesn't understand the magnitude of his own sinfulness. That he needs something other than a roof over his head and clothes on his back. He needs a savior. He needs to be raised from the dead. And God has provided that through his son, Jesus could not get that. But you and I get that. That's why we got up this morning. We know he's our maker. Let's acknowledge him as our maker. He, he has shown his love for us in creating us. He didn't have to create any of us. And he is a wonderful provider. And I hope you feel loved by him in his provision. And don't we spend a lot of our prayer time asking him, God, please come through. Please help us. Give us our daily bread. Take care of us. Oh, but we get to know him, not just as creator and provider, oh, but as redeemer. And we delight in him. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love how Paul talked about the gospel. He said it's to the praise of his glorious grace. Do you remember this? Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Oh, Jesus is indeed glorified in the cross. See this also, Jesus is to be glorified in our love for each other. Jesus is to be glorified in our love for each other. That's verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Perhaps you've heard those verses before, but isn't it interesting to see it in its context that Judas has just left the room to go and betray him. And this is the night of the betrayal. Jesus is going to be on a cross that very next morning. And everything Jesus is saying is very intentional. It's all very weighty. And he puts this truth on him right there in that context. Judas just left. And now one of the things I have to tell you that's vitally important is this new command you need to love one another. Do you see how essential that is? Jesus calls it a command. Do you see that command in your life? I, I need to respond to this teaching as a command. Jesus calls it a new command. So we say, how is it new? Because in the old covenant, didn't we learn that we're supposed to love God with everything and love our neighbors as ourselves? Absolutely. Even in the old covenant. Echoed again throughout the new covenant. But how is this a new commandment? Well, here applied to the church, to brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to love one another. It's also new in the sense that Jesus now adds, I want you to love as I have loved you. How I'm going to show you on the cross tomorrow morning, you're going to see how much I love you. And that's the new command. This is how you're supposed to love each other. Now, what would that look like in a church where Christians loved each other like Jesus loved them? 
we get a glimpse of it, and it's what we aspire to as a church. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and following, we read this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the type of genuine love we're called to. And it's very countercultural because in our culture, we are fiercely individualistic. We care about, care about ourselves. And we do well to envelop our own families in the type of love we're supposed to have. But here's the Lord saying, and not just you, not just your family, but you extend the circle of love to others who call the name of Christ. You're supposed to love one another in the same way that I have loved you. And this teaching is new here, but it's echoed throughout the New Testament. Here's an example. How about 1 Corinthians 13? The Corinthian church was so divided, so dysfunctional, Paul had to teach them what it looks like to love one another. So 1 Corinthians 13, not primarily a Valentine's passage, though you can use it there. Not primarily a wedding passage, but you certainly can use it there. It's not wrong. But given to the church because people don't know how to love one another. And so God has to teach us. And so 1 Corinthians 13. I find this interesting. Here's the apostle John who was in the upper room when Judas left the room, when Jesus gave this teaching. And so the Holy Spirit inspired him to write it here in the gospel of John. But in his later teachings, in the epistle of 1 John, he hasn't forgotten this teaching of Jesus to love one another. And he proclaims it strongly. How about this? 1 John 3, 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He goes further. He says this in 1 John 3, 14. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John's not done in 1 John 3, 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. So John says this is critically important because Jesus said this is critically important. We must do this. And of course, we cannot it's miraculous when people act this way toward one another. It's a fruit of the spirit. So we must be abiding in Christ, yielded to Christ, that we might be full of the spirit, that he would inspire and enable that type of love. Yes, at our homes, don't overshoot your home. Love them well there. But into the body of Christ, we are to love each other as Christ loved us. And here's the point. Jesus is glorified when we do that. That's verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We're being told by Jesus, this is to be a defining mark of my people. It's one of a number of defining marks, but this needs to be there in you too, that you love one another. So here's a question. Are we known for that? Are others able to see that we belong to Jesus by the way we care for one another? 
I can tell you there have been beautiful occasions of that throughout the time I've been here at the church, just watching you love one another. Sometimes it's in a hospital and they're outside of an ER or in a hallway, maybe outside of a hospice unit. And I've watched people gather from this church for a loved one, somebody maybe in their life group. So yes, there are family members there. Sometimes it's life group members there at a time of crisis. And sometimes there've been so many people that the medical staff, they're curious, like what's, what's going on? They have to be thinking of celebrities in there. Like why would all these people show up? And it's no, 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 these, these are friends. That's a friend back there. Somebody we go to church with. And when people see that type of love, they're like, what, what's up with that? I think that's a beautiful expression of it that sometimes we see. Another expression is vacation Bible school here. You think, well, that's not significant, but, but we've had people remark about the love they see when hundreds of church members do that for the love of children because of the love of God. We've had people join because they thought, I saw you loving my child, all this for my child, that, all right, I'm not just going to drop off my child. I need to come for that. I need to be a part of a church like that as, as so many people are serving and loving one another. But really, we see it every week in the church if we're paying attention, this desire to come and be together. This desire to serve one another, to, to bless children, to bless teenagers, to, to build each other up. We see a lot of love, but this is what we aspire to. We don't get it perfectly, but this is what we want to be. We want to love each other like Christ has loved us. It's going to require some things of us. One thing it's going to require of us, if we're going to follow this commandment that Jesus gives us, it's going to require discipline and dedication to prioritize fellowship with another, to be present. So that's a big deal that I can't love one another as Christ loved if I don't show up and be committed and devoted to being a part of the body. No way I can do that command if I'm not here, regularly here. So it's going to require the discipline of that, reordering life to where I will prioritize the fellowship of my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's also going to require this patience, grace, and forgiveness. Because when you hear this, that we're supposed to love each other like that, I bet all of us could come up with a list of grievances. Like, well, I wasn't loved like that. I, went, I was in the hospital and 45 people didn't show up in the hallway for me. If <laughs> we can feel like, what happened? I, I'm missing out on that. So grace, forgiveness, it's required in your family. It's required in the church family. That's how we love each other well. We're offering forgiveness like Christ is offering forgiveness to each of us. It does require that we would look for ways to serve each other, build each other up. It's practical ways that we show this together. So here again, this is a commandment. It means it's a not, not a nice extra. It's essential for us. Now I need to hear that because when I was a younger Christian, the command to love one another, really I looked at it as kind of a secondary thing. In fact, I looked at it as kind of like a wimpy idea that this love for others, and, and, and it's not entirely my fault, because what happened was, in my heart, I was reacting against some bad teaching. There were those more liberal-minded Christians who only talked about the love of Jesus and loving one another. They made a caricature of the teaching of Jesus. And so I'd hear them talk about love, and that's all they ever talked about that Jesus ever said. They act like that was just the one verse in the Bible. And so I reacted against it. Because I felt like they were forcing a false dichotomy on me. Because if you talked about doctrine and truth... And how essential that is, they said, no, 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 we're supposed to love each other. And I'm thinking, I think we're supposed to do both. Or if you talked about holiness, I need to turn away from sin and, and walk a walk of holiness. Be holy as I am holy through the, through the power of the spirit. But they're that like, no, no, the, the one command is just to love each other. And so I, I found myself just, if somebody taught on it, if there was a song about loving one another, I just thought, yes, you know, that's just wimpy. But in reality, it's not a false choice. In reality, we're supposed to do both. If our Savior says this is a commandment and I expect this of you, 
then I'm not being a biblically faithful Christian if I'm not also aspiring to love one another like this. So yes, truth, yes, holiness, all that. But at the same time, not neglecting to love each other fervently like we see throughout the New Testament. So now this, Jesus is glorified in contrast to all the human failings that made the cross necessary. Jesus is glorified in contrast to all the human failings that made the cross necessary. Here again, where are we? We're in the upper room with Jesus. Judas has just betrayed him. It's in motion now. Judas's absolute betrayal and rejection of Jesus. But now we see Peter's hour of failure. Verse 36 again. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I'm guessing in your heart right now, you're, you're feeling something that I'm feeling. Like, my, here's, here's what I have going on inside of me. I love Peter. I really like this guy. You know, we don't know him personally, but everything we read about Peter, I really like him. And I love here his sincere passion for Jesus saying, I just want to be wherever you are. He can't conceive of a scenario where he can't be with Jesus. Don't you love that? Wherever you're going, I'm confident I can go. And then he says, I'm willing to lay down my life for you. Like, even if it were to get difficult, Jesus, I'm, I'm one that you can count on like this. I love that. And we know that Peter was absolutely sincere about that. But here's what we know. Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. Jesus is going to tell him, you're, you're going to deny me three times. But here's what's interesting. You, you know about that. Probably you heard that story. But you see how quickly from the time Jesus predicts he's going to do it to Peter doing it. It's not, hey, Peter, someday you're going to have a really bad day and you're going to deny me three times. He's saying, this is the day. You're telling me you're going to lay down your life for me, but this is the day. Before that rooster crows in the middle of the night or in the morning, before that happens, you're not going to deny me just once. You're going to deny me three times. I think it's very helpful for us to, to read the occasion. So we're going to come back to the upper room here, but, but just for a moment, we're going to go ahead and go through the garden, after the garden when Jesus was arrested. And we see that very night, Peter's going to do just like Jesus said. This is Luke 22, verses 54 and following. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also were one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted saying, certainly this man also was with him for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Listen. And he went out and wept bitterly. I want you to see with me a couple of things here. Notice the strength of Jesus in contrast to the failure happening around him. Jesus has predicted that Judas is going to betray him. Jesus now predicts to Peter 
You're going to deny me three times. And yet, do you see how resolute Jesus is? I'm telling you ahead of time, and I'm still going through with the plan. This is all going according to the Father's plan. I'm going to the cross for you. Do you see that strength? Everybody's failing around him. Judas, an absolute betrayer. Peter, this, this brief time of weakness. All the disciples scattering in fear. But Jesus alone, he's walking forward toward the cross. Do you see his strength? He is glorified in the contrast between him and everybody else around him. Understand in your relationship with Jesus, there's only one strong one and a weak one. In your relationship with Jesus, Jesus alone is the strong one in your relationship and you are the weak one. In just true confession, in my relationship with Jesus, he alone is strong and I'm the weak one in the relationship and all my strength needs to come from him. Can you think about times in your life when you've shown your weakness, where you did something like what Peter did? Where maybe it was a season where, a moment where you thought, you know, I feel God prompting me to share Christ with that person over there. I should, I should talk to them about Christ. I should invite them to church and talk about Jesus. And you didn't? You think, why didn't you? Probably the same motivation of Peter. I'm afraid. For us, this is a little awkward. Peter's thinking to probably arrest me too if, I, if I'm known for Jesus. But have you ever been unfaithful to Jesus in a moment like that? Or maybe you were in a group of people and they begin to somehow speak against Christianity, speak against the Bible, speak against Christ, and, and you stay silent. I should say something, I'm, but here I am. I'm afraid to be identified with Jesus, but I should have stood up for him. Are there people in your life who have no idea that you are indeed are a Christian? Maybe where you work, you've tried to be so stealth about your faith in Christ. Maybe where you go to school, you just don't want anybody to know because you don't want to take the heat for Christ. Listen, isn't that what Peter did? We're wimping out, we're selling out because we're afraid of something. Listen, ask the Lord to show you your heart this morning. Lord, is that me? Is there something of Peter's failure in me? Thankfully with Peter, his was not a falling away like we saw in Judas. Judas was a faker, it was never real. His, his being a hypocrite was all exposed. But Peter was sincere. And he failed. But here's good news for us. There is forgiveness and restoration after that type of failure. We're all counting on it, aren't we? We're not going to read it right now, but in John chapter 21, if you want to read about that beautiful time when Peter gets that reassurance that he's been forgiven and restored, that's recorded for us in the scripture. That comforts us. But we're also encouraged by the transformation in Peter after he saw the risen Savior. After resurrection, we have a new Peter now. Okay, I'm bold now. And certainly after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit filled him and the other apostles, now he's courageous and he's preaching fearlessly. In fact, when they arrested him and told him not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus, didn't he say, we must obey God rather than men. So praise God, when we fail, there is forgiveness available. Aren't you glad there's restoration available? There's strength for our weakness available in the Lord. We see it happen for Peter. This is available to us as well. You do know that your Christian life was never to be met in your own strength. It just doesn't work that way. We need the strength of God. And over and over again, we're exhorted to tap into his strength. Here's just a few quick examples. Colossians 1:29. for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Famously, Philippians 4:13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Or beautifully, Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, 
He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So this life is not to be lived in our self-confidence. We're not to live a life that we would describe as self-reliant or we are relying on our God, his strength. We're to be bold and faithful, drawing our strength from him. So let's apply what we've heard this morning together before we go. First of all, do you see the glory of Jesus in the cross? Do you see his unmatched grace and love offered to you on the cross? The only one who can save you. Can you see that? And then this question, have you responded to Jesus and what he's offering you? You don't want to just know about that, that he is amazing, he's loving, but you need to make that yours. The Bible talks about repentance and faith. Repentance means you change your mind about Jesus. You're not indifferent about him anymore. You're not making him just one of the things in your life. You're turning from everything else you've been trusting, and now you're putting your faith in Jesus, the only one who can save you from your sins, the one who died on the cross, spilling his perfect blood for you, the one who was raised from the dead on the third day. Yes, the one who ascended to heaven, the one who's coming back in glory. You need to trust him as your savior. If you believe in him, the Bible says you won't perish, but you'll have everlasting life. But don't, don't reject him. The right move is to trust him. And today I pray you'll do that. And then two other questions. Consider this. Are you Judas or are you Peter? Judas was a faker, a total hypocrite. Betrayed Christ because he never had believed in Christ. That could be you today. You've been faking. Maybe your name's on our church roll here. or Your name's on some other church roll. Or you're here just to do a favor for somebody. And it's just all not real. But you know, here's the good news. The grace of God is offered to you today. You can go from one who's never meant it today to meaning it. When you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And you can add hypocrisy to my list of many sins. And I need your forgiveness. Jesus, would you, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? He would if you come humbly to him. Trust in Jesus, the one who died for you, the one who was raised from the dead. Put your faith in him. But maybe again, you're like Peter. Think, I do love Jesus. I do trust Jesus. But I've only been bold for him in this space. And when I've left this space, I've not been bold for him. Would you repent of that? Would you take up a fresh devotion to him? Would you rededicate your life to Jesus today where you would be bold here, bold at school, bold at work? bold in the neighborhood. Like I am not ashamed of him. He's the savior of the world. I want to tell people about Jesus. Would you, would you step toward that today? Receiving forgiveness and re receiving a fresh filling of the Holy spirit that you be bold like this.